Hello and welcome back to the SimGeeks podcast. We are your hosts, William Belk and David Shablock. This episode is actually the audio recording of a live panel session that we did at SimGhost USA uh, just last, well, in the last couple of weeks, actually, at Parkview Miro uh, Simulation Center out in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So we got to have a great time with this. We got to spend some time with three just absolute gods in the simulation industry. And it was an absolute blast. So we had a lot of fun with not only this, but the conference in general, our friends over at SimGhost, the work that we did there, the classes that we taught. Uh, and so we wanted to make sure that if, if you didn't catch this live stream initially, we did re-release this both audio and video, which I'm going to let David talk about here for a couple seconds. And we also want to say thank you for SimGhost for suggesting the panel and having us on. We were very, very honored to uh, be a part of this for you guys and uh, bring it to you. Uh, if uh, you're listening to this as a podcast episode, when I say this is actually going to be available on our YouTube channel as well. So it should just be a simple uh, search for the SimGeeks YouTube channel. And uh, we hope you enjoy listening to this panel by some amazing people. So now on to the session. Good afternoon and welcome. First, I have to take a selfie with all of you. Hold on. If you do not follow me on Twitter, you should because your face will be on there later. <clears throat> I am honored to kick off this Sim Geeks live stream podcast. Will Belk and David Shablock are two of my dearest peer mentors. I think very highly of them and reach out to them on a regular basis. I try not to be too needy, but sometimes I can't help it. Uh, <laughs> it always makes a difference when somebody speaks your language, right? And they're here today to uh, do live stream their podcast, which is amazing. If you have not watched it, which I was one of those people that binge watched the podcast, I greatly encourage you to do that. Subscribe and like. Uh, the channel, uh, but um, I'm going to turn it over to you now. Hi right, guys, I'm William Bell, Corporation. so I run basically all of our simulation for about 1,400 flight clinicians, so mostly nurses and paramedics, uh, and we will be bouncing back and forth asking questions. I do want to make one point very clear though, uh, the questions from the audience will be coming through the Whova app and will be sent to us. So please be sure to be active in that because we're only going to be able to talk so much. David. We find that hard to believe. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> to be the talker. Okay. So my name is David Schablock. I work for Orbis Education in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, it's an accelerated BSN nursing program and been in SIM for about 10 years. But uh, who you really came to hear is our esteemed panelists, and uh, we will have them kind of introduce themselves. Susie Cardong Edgren, an associate professor at the Massachusetts General Hospital Institute of Health Professions, and the current president of the Enaxel Organization, which is the International Nursing Association for Clinical Simulation and Learning. And my name is Andrew Spain. I'm the Director of Certification and the Interim Associate Executive Director for the Society for Simulation and Healthcare, and a paramedic by background for almost 30 years. And I am Scott Crawford. I am an Associate Professor for the, or at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center, El Paso, Department of Emergency Medicine and also the Director for the Training and Educational Center for Healthcare Simulation uh, there. And my 
other role is as a board member and treasurer for SimGhosts. All right, guys. Well, I think, uh, I think you, you've introduced yourselves. We know that you all have extensive clinical backgrounds. How important, that, how important has that been for your success in simulation? And how has that affected your careers in simulation? Everybody jump at once. And I was going to say, and anybody can go first. No, just, what I would so say is I, put up a hand and just say, you know, kind of a nod that I'm going to go first. I'm going first. So um, I was mostly labor and delivery. I absolutely love labor and delivery. And usually everything goes right, except every now and then things go wrong. And I would have loved to have been a student during the time of sim because it would have made a lot of difference for me because I could have simulated a lot of the things that I had to learn in real life with real consequences for patients. So it's made a huge difference for me. And uh, I think that a lot of people in labor and delivery and emergency room run towards simulation the first time they see it. Um, a lot of people run away from it the first time they see it. But I think that we, because we use so many gadgets anyway in our, in our normal work, that we're very attracted to it. And I certainly found that to be true for me. <clears throat> I, I would say for me it's actually more of a symbiotic relationship because I would say that simulation is what helped me become a paramedic. Uh, even things such as taking the, the airway head and, and taking it outside so we'd understand what it would be like to actually intubate someone outside versus in a controlled OR type setting. And of course now it's flipped because having had all those clinical experiences and the, uh, the learning over the years, I would definitely say that that helps me push really hard for how we design and implement simulation activities because, of course, I'm going to sit there and say, well, that's too easy because you never know what you're going to walk into in the real clinical world. We can't have it set up so simply because that's not real. Mm -hmm. So experience in emergency medicine, um, as you probably figured out from a variety of uh, those involved with simulation, that anesthesia and EM are, are some of the, the biggest at least early proponents and consumers of the education, and I think that has to do with the diversity of, of the types of things that are encountered and the acuity with which they occur. And my experience within EM allowed me to encounter and experience simulation, but actually it's kind of the whole host of other experiences and backgrounds that I think has allowed me to kind of become where I am in simulation and uh, the clinical background is just the thing that allowed me to discover that this awesome field existed. Mm -hmm. So that's actually a good lead into the next question which is um, we find that in simulation nobody gets here by the direct route. <laughs> it's it's uh, been described as the coolest job that no one ever knew existed. So in, in a in short story of how did you get here and uh, you know what kept you here? to think about it. Wait, you run it back this yeah, way if you want? Yeah, you go, go ahead. Uh, so my set of varied backgrounds in, uh, in life before going into medical school even, I think is what helped me to land where I am. Uh, growing up before the age of even 14, um, I was a semi-professional stage magician. In college, I worked as a DJ, uh, setting up uh, sound equipment I worked in my brother's musical instrument store, and uh, then in college, I worked in a machine shop and got my undergraduate degree in, in physics. And that was all before actually pursuing uh, my EMT and then later medical school. So when I came out um, of 
of all of that, I had also spent time as an independent employee computer technician, and my director for the emergency medicine department brought me on as an early faculty and said, I think you might be good in SIM, and I'd like you to get all of the wires and cables and things that we need. And that was my introduction, and they sent me to this conference called SimGhost in 2012, and I didn't know what I was stepping into. That's a good story. I think for myself, um, again, as many of you uh, sort of backdoored into it, I, I was actually educating almost from day one after becoming a, a licensed paramedic and was using simulation without knowing it, teaching PHTLS, ACLS, PALS, CPR, you know, task trainers, standardized patients, even the, the, the non-programmable mannequins and things like that. And at some point it became a, oh, wouldn't it be nice one day when I'm going to do simulation, we get those fully programmable mannequins and things like that. Well, Robin Wooten, who uh, was opening up a sim center at the University of Missouri, came down and introduced herself and basically helped inform me that, no, I'd actually been doing simulation the entire time. And so I had a very steep learning curve and, of course, already had the bug because I enjoyed doing education anyway. And now it's just sort of this whole other world that opened up to me uh, through what she uh, it helped educate me to. Wow. I had to think about it because it was a while back. And it was, it was truly an um, amazingly lucky situation in that when you have leadership in your program that everybody is a visionary. It's wonderful for the leadership. It's exhausting for the faculty because most faculty are not visionary. And, and I was at the University of Texas Arlington and uh, Beth Mancini, who was a CNO at Parkland Hospital at that point, I think somehow uh, had uh, got us involved with Laredal, and we had one of the first Laredal mannequins back then. And our leadership came down to see it, and we all, and I just happened to be walking through and saw it and said, oh my gosh, look at this, what can we do with this? <clears throat> and that went back then to Laredal, and we ended up with a, another mannequin, and I was led by Mindy Anderson, and we had this uh, quarter of a million dollar mannequin, and we were literally cutting out um, we're going on the internet, which was the new thing, the internet back then. <laughs> and we were cutting out things like malignant melanoma pictures, um, coccyx bed sores, and we were sticking them to this quarter of a million dollar mannequin. Uh, because we didn't, there were no scenarios yet. We didn't really know what to do with them. So we were using them in a, a physical assessment class. And we started kind of writing our own little scenarios for that. Students had 15 minutes to go through. We didn't really debrief because we didn't know what that was. And so we were early, 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 and it was, um, and from there, our dean, who was truly visionary, had a smart hospital funded. We didn't even know what it was. It ended up being a portable building that we turned into all simulation all the time. We ended up with a grant with 20 Laredal mannequins. They were stacked like cordwood. It looked like a morgue. We had them everywhere, and then they said, now we have to think of something to do with these. So one thing led to another, led to another. And uh, it became quite the thing. At that time, I was asked to take over as um, editor of a, the Clinical Simulation and Nursing Journal, which was published in-house by the Anaxal organization. And I just said, I read it and said, this is really good. Why aren't you publishing with a publisher? And long story short, all of those kinds of things led to um, the, the growth of simulation and the growth of that journal, et cetera, et cetera. So again, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time with great visionary leadership. And the rest is history. And the rest is history. <laughs> 
So in the last several years, we've seen kind of an explosion of formal education, right? We're seeing more and more master's degrees, even associate's degrees, bachelor's degrees that are simulation specific. Uh, and as we've already discussed, we all have kind of fallen into simulation by accident or have gotten into it from different ways. How do we see that going in the future? Do we think that those formal education programs or do you think those formal education programs could somehow replace um, or prepare people to come in cold without having that random background experience that we all have? To, to me, I think going through a formal program like that is the thing that would actually give you all of that random background if you didn't have it through some other uh, route. Um, certainly having a, a wealth of diverse experiences is what makes us uniquely suited to be able to think outside the box and create and design. Um, but if you have a mindset that draws you to a program like that, I don't think it would or should be able to uh, stifle that and uh, may even just help to draw in those individuals and even give them more support to be able to pursue those earlier on. I could jump in there and say that there are now masters and PhD programs in simulation mm -hmm. also basically. Uh, what I would agree with what you just said, Scott, in that you think it's all random, but what happens is when you have only been trained with randomness or bits here and there, you, you can get through this for years and not know what you don't know. The cool thing about going to a formalized program is that somebody has had to deliberately sit down and think about all of the things that we probably need to know. And so what invariably happens is people are going through some of these programs or certificate programs and they're saying, I've been doing this for 10 years, I never knew this. Mm -hmm. I've been doing this, and I didn't know this. And I think that you're having that same experience in what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the, the growth of the, the degree programs, all it's going to do is provide additional streams of really high-quality talent into the industry, which is, frankly, something we really need. When you look at the fact that you know health, a healthcare simulation is not – that's not in – the, the government definition of jobs and things like this. It's all going to promote the growth of the of healthcare simulation as a whole and healthcare simulationists as individuals because not only are you going to continue to have all these other streams, whether you're a paramedic, an OT, PT, physician, nurse, veterinarian, or anything like that, coming into healthcare simulation, you're going to have these people who are actually targeted into the, into the, uh, the role already. And just having the degree programs already helps them identify that passion earlier in their stream. And so it'll help just improve what we're doing, I think. And I would add that because it is so professionalized now, it is becoming so much more professional, and there's so much more to know. And the role of the operation specialist, um, HSTS2, is growing so rapidly. We used to think it was just mannequins, but now it's becoming VR and AR. So you're really becoming the curator of the tech, new technologies that could be used for teaching. So that is something that maybe some of us weren't necessarily aware was gonna happen, but it is. Yeah. So who knows what's coming next? And being able to do that curation and being able to prepare people and pick the best bang for your buck for your program is gonna be really important and operations is set up for that. So I was gonna pass you off to David for the next question, but you actually led into the one after that. So I'm gonna go ahead and ask it now. Uh, <laughs> you just said it. the questions earlier. So, so yeah, there we go. <laughs> so VR and XR, this, this whole realm is becoming almost commonplace, right? And I think it's only going to get more and more over the next few years. How is that going to evolve simulation? And specifically, how is it going to affect our operations specialists and how they and how they work in their career going forward? I think right off the bat, it's going to improve accessibility. 
and also the ways in which we can approach education, of course. And all of that is predicated even on what is it the VR is right now, what, what is XR as we know it, because every simulation modality has its strengths and every simulation modality has its areas of improvement and thing like this. And so we don't even know what we're going to be having in the next few years, but whether it's through the, the, the necessity of COVID or, or whatever you want, you want to say, the fact that people are understanding these newer, more technology-oriented platforms, modalities, is a win for all of us because it just expands everything that can be done in simulation now, building on what we already have and enhancing the abilities of each of those and frankly forcing all of us to up our game. If we're used to just using, say, standardized patients, well, we've got to keep up with, look at all the wonderful things that VR and XR can do. Well, I, I've got to make my SP work that much better. And that's just an example, obviously. But all of our, our ways in which we use simulation can be improved as we learn from the different modalities. Yeah. So actually, I'd like to just start, if I can, with a quick show of hands. Who has in their home a VR piece of equipment that they would be able to have access to and use? Okay, I'm going to say 15 to 20% <laughs> kind of a, as a quick ballpark. The, the primary target market that I've seen for this is kind of the slightly younger, meaning teenage to 30-something age group. And I started trying to use VR systems within graduate medical education in 2016. And you know that, again, coming out of medical school, likely probably at least a potentially affluent background and that target demographic, fewer than 1% of those individuals had ever put a VR helmet on. And it wasn't because they didn't exist at that time, but they were not widespread in adoption. So the fact that in this room here, we are seeing 15 to 20% just even in their own homes, and I'm guessing if we did that same show of hands in their center or with a plan to adopt it, how many of you have or will expect to have VR in your centers in the next year? So it's still probably 20 to 30%. And so the ability to grow there is, is amazing. And choosing what you can do with it or identifying what you can do with it is still going to be the, the primary um, goal, I think, mm -hmm. is the experiential piece, the ability to have the sensory uh, stimuli is something that you can't get in other ways, but we're still waiting on the, the haptics to catch up. Susie? I was lucky enough when I was at Washington State University to get to go down to the big campus in Pullman, Washington and experience True Haptic Gloves, the $15,000 a pair pair, uh, with a spin-off company from Washington State that got the name that truck company. This was back when women who were four foot nine, 90 pounds were starting to drive big rigs, the same as the six foot 10, 350 pound guy and they had they got the contract to build the truck cab to fit the four foot nine the six foot nine individual and they were doing it with VR so I got to go down and sit and experience what was possible that would have been about 2008 and boy we were so far behind um, because after you have the haptic gloves on and you know what it feels like it's just like I want it I want it I want it and I don't know if those are even the best haptic gloves, but you can literally feel the weight. Everything looks the way it's supposed to look like it was really there. You can hold it in your hand. You can bounce it. 
It's amazing. And so I guess I grew up watching the holodeck, and I want it now. <laughs> I want it right now. Indeed. So uh, all those things have to be fixed. It, the, I agree, haptics are going to be critical. Being able to do multi-site all in the same game at the same time would be fabulous, especially for ACLS retraining. Wouldn't it be great if your state had a whole sign-up for everybody, we're running ACLS classes at this time, this time, this time, sign up for your time, put on your headgear, and you're signing up for the role of nurse, you're signing up for the role of RT, you're signing up for the role of physician. And you can be any place and go in and run that ACLS scenario, get your sign off, and then go back about your business. That's the world I want to be in right now. Mm -hmm. So... We're actually getting a few questions for the, the Whova app. Thank you. Um, and this one's pretty good. Is uh, from your perspective, what is the biggest obstacle to development um, and also promote non-clinical staff in a simulation center? So like obstacles to success for, um, you know, developing a program. Well, it sounded like there was a, you said non-clinical staff. Yeah, I think there's yeah. two in there. I'm sorry, transitioning non-clinical staff into, into a sim environment, yes. Well, so since we are working in healthcare simulation, obviously there needs to be some clinical knowledge or ability to interact within a clinical environment or with clinicians. But I don't think that that has to come from a clinical experience. I think that that can come from an increased understanding, and I've watched from you know staff at my own center that if you spend enough time in sim, you can really get quite knowledgeable about healthcare. So you have to take the time and you have to engage with those opportunities. Um, but certainly, having some clinical background will certainly help you to to engage uh, more readily with that group. And I think that that is going to help you become accepted a lot more, especially if it's not already um, been a, a path that's been paved at the program you're at. We just watched a great presentation from earlier today. Help, who helped me out there with the name of the girl who did it was Shelly. Yes, oh my gosh, it was so good. If you're on the Vova app, you wanna take a look at that, watch that, because here's a person who um, at age 50 with no healthcare background became a volunteer sim tech with Matthew who, um, who mentored her. It, it just brings tears to my eyes, I, I, so I'm not gonna talk about it anymore, but it was quite the story. And here's somebody with no healthcare background who now is a paid sim tech and does amazing things. She's talking about ballistics like she knows what she's talking about. It's just amazing. So mm -hmm. I think it can happen. And there are people who are now getting into that experience. I have somebody right now who wants to come into our uh, PhD program who says, I'm, I'm stuck because I need, I, I need to be able to progress, but I'm not a clinician. I said, you need to go do EMT or something to fill that square so that you people feel like you've got that background. But he's in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So I woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning and said, oh, the other way would be get your terminal degree. Because then people think, you know... <laughs> They're piled higher and deeper. They think you know what you, what you know, <laughs> whether you do or not. And he's working. He's working in simulation. But that isn't gonna be an impediment for him. I think unless he gets his doctorate. But I'm curious about what you guys think. I, just in quick response to the, the initial question, I think there there are many barriers, and I'm trying to determine which one might be the biggest one. But I think actually it's 
it comes down to the basic human nature of we often struggle with that which, which, with which we are not familiar. Uh-huh. And so if I'm surrounded by a bunch of other healthcare providers and suddenly this engineer, just picking on another group, comes in and starts speaking engineer, I'm going to, you need to stay over there. That, that's a normal human tendency, unfortunately. And so it takes us to move beyond some of those built-in biases that we may not even be aware, uh, to, to then engage in those other uh, ways of thinking, other ways to process information and things like this. And so that makes it a bit of a challenge and it's how to break down those barriers and be more engaging and welcoming to a, to a lot of those diverse backgrounds, which thankfully in simulation, we generally have already made that step, mm-hmm. but there's a lot that haven't quite gotten there that I think would be, remain one of the bigger barriers. Mm-hmm. So I'm really starting to think that somebody did slip Susie all the questions. So <laughs> you, just, you just were talking about a subject with bringing somebody into simulation, maybe without any experience or any other clinical background and trying to bring them up. And I think, I think we all agree that everyone in this room is responsible for the future of simulation and where this is going to go. So what should we as simulationists be doing now to recruit the next generation? How do we bring in new talent? How do we convince people that this is a viable career so that we can then push the industry forward? And that this is a real job. Because I know that some people we've put it, brought into this industry, I, I can think of one off the top of my head, it took so much convincing that, yes, this is a real job. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'll lead off with, it, with this one. Um, I, th- I think it, it's essentially asking each of you to do one more thing, uh, which I know you all have plenty of time. But we often are so focused on looking forward and how we're going to progress our own career, who we're going to engage with as mentors and things like that. And I would ask you to add the one more thing and start looking behind and how you're going to bring people along with you as well. Uh, implementing programs at your institution that perhaps reach out to the, the STEM institutions around your, your neighborhood, frankly. Uh, and start engaging people with coming into your sim center who, again, would be following in behind you as well and start generating that interest, which sounds simple, but of course it takes effort and a lot of work. But it's it, you're. It's so easy for us to get focused on what's in the future. And until we, I mean, Susie is amazing at, at looking back and helping people come up. And I don't know what, what point in her career she converted into it, but, but she's an example I would hold out as she reaches back and helps bring people forward. And if you can start that now, mm-hmm. that's going to be so impactful on, on healthcare simulation and especially the OS role moving forward. And I have to say that, yes, Susie is amazing at being able to help bring people forward. I, I remember I remember it was 2015, I, I went and I, I showed you a like a, a five paragraph thing that I wrote and said, hey, is this, you know, is this any any good? And you convinced me not only that it was good, but that I should continue writing more of them and to develop an entire set of them. And since then I started trying to put out, you know copious amounts of, of writing to be able to, to do this, and it eventually led into a textbook that I didn't think I was ever going to do in my life. Um, but now I, I feel like I've moved to a point that I want to be able to help others to move forward, and just the, the encouragement, the push that you can succeed, and giving ideas about how to do that is what allowed me, I think, to be able to, to move forward from the, oh, I, I just showed up at this conference and it's kind of cool, to trying to actually push forward and change boundaries for others that are in this, in this environment. Awesome, 
awesome. I did not know I was the one who would have to birth that book. That is so great. I have to say that, uh, I will say in nursing, that uh, somehow along the way, we've done a really great job of crushing each other's spirits. And <laughs> I, I, I rebel against that every chance I get. And when I see a little shimmer, a little spark of talent along the way, I try to nurture it. Uh, nurture it in any way that I possibly can because there are so many talented people in the healthcare professions. Uh, and I think COVID brought out a lot of that. And of course, now we've burned all those poor people out. There's almost no spark left. But, uh, but I think we need to help each other as much as we can and identify talent and then nurture it. Because some of us would like to retire one day. <laughs> and, and we all will go away, and we are all replaceable, but somebody has to be there to replace us. Susie's so, not allowed to go away. Oh, so when Susie walks, Susie will be very successful walking away. I'm practicing, <laughs> I'm practicing my bocce ball right now. We, we will find you. <laughs> so going to the, uh, the role of the SimOps specialist, somebody coming into this industry, I always talk about how you know we have about four pillars of knowledge. We come from different places and doing different things. What do you think if um, you know somebody comes in with one one of those pillars? What do you think would be the most important one that they should work on the next, or the most knowledge they should come into if somebody has been you know talked about this position and we say you need to work on this one? This is probably the most important knowledge point you should have. I'm I'm going to say that it's the ability to read critically and figure out how to take what you've read and build upon it from your past experience. I, I mean, I, I don't, that, that's exceptionally complex, yeah. potentially, but I don't think anybody in here came in with obviously all of the knowledge that they have to succeed in doing what they're doing, whether it's with uh, silicone or programming or whatever it is, but they've read, they've, talked, they've figured out pieces of their background, filled in the gaps, and then pushed the bar forward. We are entering a, a period that, you know, we're trying to create and advance a full profession. And we've already helped to create things like resources for how to share some of those innovations and a common language and recognition as individuals with specialized talents, but to then work to really advance that, get it inscribed, written down so that others can build upon it and move it forward. That's, that's the growth. So document and share. That makes sense. And, and grow on your personal experiences. Uh, when you were saying that, I'm like, every sim I do, I'm looking back to a, an experience that, you know, I had and I'm rolling that into that, so that's good. So I would throw in that there is a fabulous podcast out there by the Sim Geeks about, <laughs> and I listened to it last night, about if you don't have to know everything, but you need to know who to ask. And so networking is critical. 
And, and that a lot of people are afraid to approach people that they think are like, Ooh. I say, don't be afraid. We were all um, not known before. We've all been there. And I can remember looking up to the first nurse person I met famous at a big nursing conference. We were in the ladies' room. She's washing her hands, and I see her name badge, and I go, because oh. like when you read people, you think, they must be dead, you know? They're, it's, <laughs> they must be dead. And I'm looking, and her name was Lorraine Walker. She was a famous OB person. I said, you're Lorraine Walker? And she picked up her name badge, and she's looking at it, and she goes, why, yes, I am. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 you are the Lorraine Walker. And I'm just like, ah, and she's like, get over it, you know? Um, she was not impressed with herself. And if you ever approach somebody and they act like they are impressed with themselves, find somebody else. Because there's plenty of us that are not impressed with ourselves. And the ter term expert really means is that um, you know what you don't know and you know who to ask. That's how that really works. We don't all have all the answers. So. Yeah, and um, going back to your original question, I actually would challenge, do we actually have people that come in that automatically have one of the pillars? Because I, th I think there are amazing individuals out there who come in with absolutely you know, zero or very little knowledge if they have the right mindset. You know, that right behavior, that right, it's, it's sort of the behavioral interviewing process, but I would encourage you to even reflect on, have you ever gone into a restaurant and run into a server or, or a bartender, being at a hotel or something like that, somebody, some industry that has nothing to do with healthcare simulation, you thought, that's someone who should be in our industry because they're an amazing person. And so they're going to come in, hopefully we're going to get more and more of these people, again, with that creative, energetic type of activity, and so it's, I think it's key to make sure you get a good mentor, or mentors that can engage with you over your lifelong professional development, uh, and to work in hopefully a very good setting where you have bosses that will actually help you walk through which of the pillars are we gonna focus on first based on organizational need, uh, your own strengths, uh, things like that, so you have a good fit, and stay in it. And so it's a very flexible answer I realize that I'm giving you, so I don't have a one, you have to do this first type of thing, outside of to match it up to the individual so you're maximizing what they can do. A theme I'm hearing is stay hungry and share what you know. Absolutely. Check the Whova app real quick, just to make sure I'm not missing okay. on anything. All right, so uh, you know, there's there's so many different backgrounds we're bringing in. We've talked about this a lot already today. How is that sim operations educator relationship going to evolve as we go forward? I forgot to bring my crystal ball. <laughs> no, actually, I, th I think we're already seeing that evolution. Mm -hmm. And I know I've talked to a number of you uh, over the years about this, but um, as the operations specialist role grows, we're seeing more and more of the operations specialist being the full-time person in, in the system, so to speak, which allows the educator to be able to step back from some of the things they may previously have had to do. Uh, because you know, when you're a one-stop shop, you know, I'm the only person doing it, that's very, very challenging. Mm -hmm. And so as we see the complementary roles of each come in, I think you're going to see, again, this is an opinion, so, so keep that in mind. I'm not officially representing my 
work or anything like that, but I just see the operations specialist as being the fundamental core of activities, processes, et cetera, and the educators can come in and, and bring their creativity and their things that they want to get accomplished based on their programmatic needs, and it's going to be this fabulous partnership moving forward. Again, almost like a, a hub-and-spoke type model with the Sim Center and the operations specialist being right there, and then the, the various people able to come in and, and just take advantage of that setup. And I think with the increased recognition of the, the role and of the abilities within that role, there will be expanded opportunities, or there should be, that, yes, I don't expect necessarily um, to be writing scenarios and be the content expert if that isn't truly your background, but you are all becoming experts in educational design and educational mm -hmm. delivery and scenario um, implementation and the ability to share that, especially with potentially novice educators that don't have that background, you're able to provide that type of guidance and instruction to them in a way that they may not have even had their own mentorship um, provide that type of training. Um, so being able to critically review their ability to debrief, being able to review their um, their method for how they're delivering a sim, showing them what the capabilities of the technology are to improve the content. That's what they should start to be looking to you in that role to be able to do. Susie? I agree with my esteemed colleagues. <laughs> Fair enough. So another question that came through on the Whova app is, as you're, you've been in sim for a while, what can you think back and think of was your favorite aha moment, whether it was one that you witnessed or one that you learned from yourself? Let someone else deal with the technology so I don't break it again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm the one that creates the smoke. I'll walk by it and it, it will start smoking. So I just, it was, I'll do the educational bit. Someone else can do all that. Love it. You thinking, Scott? I'm, I'm trying to think. Can you, can you repeat it one more time? So you're, off the top of your head, usually we all have one of these favorite aha moments, whether it's you're looking through the glass and you actually see a student's you know, light bulb go off and, or something that you figured out yourself because you know, one of the things about being in SIM is we actually learn so much just through the osmosis, like you said. And I was actually thinking about you know, all of our spouses sitting next to us when we watch the medical dramas. Um, you know, they have to hear us, but also they learn so much you know, by the osmosis. But like, what, are, what are your favorite aha moments or you know, anything you can think of like that? Oh, I've got one. So the one I will never forget is I've been teaching uh, clinical for many years. And the first time I was in a simulation, uh, I'm on the other side of the glass, and one of my best students uh, is screwing up royally in the scenario. And, and I was up against the glass, literally looking in, my nose pressed against it, and I was like, I had no idea. She didn't know all of this stuff. And that's what aha and the horror of this is what they do when I'm not there to see what they're doing. And this is somebody who I thought was probably pretty great. Uh, she looked great, but you, the reason I thought she was great, she, she had really good verbal skills. So I really started paying attention to that. And the better the students' verbal skills are, the more leeway we give them or, or we believe they are better because they talk really well. They sound like they know what they're doing. When you can see them in Sam, and that was my aha moment that I have always held on to, and it's held pretty, pretty steady. 
um, is that just because you can talk well doesn't mean you know what you're doing. So we had a, a Whova question come in, and I can think of no better person in the world than Mr. Andrew Spain to take this one first. Uh, what can a new, very green sim tech do to grow the, and advance their career, and what certifications are available for these people? There's a softball one. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I, th I think the first thing, you, you just have to pick up things like um, all, all the standards that are out there, the, the, the framework from SimGhost, for example, you're, you're going to have to pick that up. You're going you're gonna to want to pick up the examination blueprint as, as, hey, where are we going for, for the certification in the future? Uh, and, and you've got to just sort of embed yourself in what, is it, what are the ways that we do things? Um, and just uh, be a sponge because there's so much out there. I mean, you can go to any of our partners in industry and you can learn so much from them. I mean, we've got plenty of them in the back of the room today with their with their their VR devices, mannequins, task trainers, all the things that are back there, and you can just soak up so much from them. So just take on that sponge mentality. Uh, it's probably the easiest way. Now, as for certifications, uh, specific to OS, obviously there's Certified Healthcare Simulations Operations Specialist, and that's that two-year two uh, competency level, so you have to have the two years of experience. Exam-based, everyone's favorite, I know. There's uh, lots of uh, literature that supports doing the exam-based certifications at some point. And then, of course, the new one with the advanced certification, uh, which is a portfolio-based one after you've achieved that five-year benchmark and made much more of an impact, taken on much more of a leadership role, things like that. So did I answer all the bits? I, I think you did, and okay. I know you've answered the certification <laughs> thing, but will do you, the other two want to weigh in on what can we do to advance a career, especially somebody coming in new? I think it's important to know what side of healthcare simulation you are trying to embed yourself with because the difference between uh, health systems based and academic based and military based programs will have different answers to them. And uh, I don't think that the culture will ever be able to change uh, significantly within academia just because not much does. Um, so if you are really trying in that realm, I, I can tell you just the ability to get a degree, to hit the checkbox, to be able to move up may be important. Um, but certainly in some other more progressive systems or those that are able to think and see um, skills without necessarily just the letters after your name, uh, you can get a long way if you're willing to uh, learn how to adapt and, and increase your, your abilities. And there was a Sim Geeks podcast <laughs> about all of the different ways that you can um, do basically free training. And there's Coursera, and there's um, Udacity, and there's the wonderful course from George Washington University. Full disclosure, I teach one of those things that's in there. One of the I teach the evaluation little module. It's free. And you only have to pay like 49 bucks if you want the CE for it. And it's free. It's, it will give you a broad range of what you need to know to work in simulation. Mm -hmm. So two things. One, no, we're not paying her, you <laughs> or her. <laughs> and two, I second the George Washington University. It's, it's a wonderful course. I, like I told you the other day, I've, said, I've been in sim for, you know, at that time it was nine years before I took that course. I just took it for the episode, and I loved every bit of it, and I learned things. So it was great. Right. And, and just to sell myself out here, in the original recording of that podcast, you were mentioned, but I mispronounced your name, so I cut that piece out once I listened back to it. So that is the benefit of a podcast. I can say whatever I want, and I can fix it before any of you guys see it. We didn't really get that benefit today, so it's a little bit different. There we go. And one of the other new things that's developing really are is um, badges. 
And it's funny because I was talking with Jim Gordon uh, from MGH, and I said, so I was talking, I said, do you do, you do badges? Are you guys going to be doing badges? He said, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and that's the problem with academia and big hospital systems is that we know CE, we know um, academia, but we don't know these other things. And badging is something that Simghost is getting involved in. You have some on your website. I think you're way too cheap. Just telling you. <laughs> uh, but it is the way for people who, and a lot of academia is losing its luster as we speak. Um, is there a, what, something that's going to replace it in the future? For many things, I think yes, and badging may be one of the, one of the things. And badges are really big in the Microsoft world, in the uh, uh, in the world in uh, a lot of uh, things that are tech and banking and all that. If you're trying to learn new pieces of software and stuff, you get badges for all of those things. You start looking online. A lot of your universities are doing badging, and I think that SimGhost ought to get more involved in badging. I think the SSH could get involved in badging. I think uh, some universities in simulation are going to be doing badging in the future. And of course, our hope is that it's like a little breadcrumb trail that leads you then to come back in to maybe get a degree. But there's tons of ways to get good education for not a lot of money these days. And I think that um, don't play, don't be a sheep. Don't just follow along. Try something different. So we had a, another question come in uh, through Whova, and the question that I'm looking at says, what methods have you found are best for ensuring continuity of SimOps in an organization with high staff turnover? And I'm going to add to that, too, what advice do you have for us for reducing turnover in our ops specialists? So hopefully, uh, I think this is sort of an understood thing in, in HR, is that very few people, um, well, basically, people leave organizations. They don't leave jobs. So they'll leave if they're not happy with the work environment, with the uh, the way that they're being respected or treated. And it's very rarely that they, you know, didn't get the extra, um, you know, 10% uh, increase in, in price. Because if you were happy doing it, you'd probably still be doing it. And so being able to find a work environment that supports and respects what you're doing is the way that uh, hopefully you'll be able to maintain a workforce, or at least that's what I'm hoping, knowing that I even have some of my own staff in the room. Um, but the, uh, you know, beyond that, um, having a written trail of what's expected um, if you do end up having some sort of turnover, whether it's just a simple one-page instruction on how to turn on the machine and that you know password that you know everybody thinks everybody knows, but until somebody doesn't, it creates a big problem. Just keeping a, a paper trail of those things uh, so that if there is uh, ever turnover, that it's easier to to provide that uh, type of uh, re-onboarding and training. Yeah, I think it's, it's probably a little difficult to answer the question without knowing more of the organizational fundamentals, but I would echo definitely the, the whole cultural notion. There's, If there's that much of a turnover, I'd be very concerned that there's something related to culture that's keeping those people from staying. Uh, it's possible that it, it's a battle for the entire industry. Is the pay grade appropriate in the first place? Uh, and that may be a, a fundamental structural issue that has to be addressed because, unfortunately, too many of the, the pay grades that I hear about for operations specialists, frankly, are... I'm going to just, again, opinion, I think they're insulting, um, and we also all have to work on that as a group because you do amazing things. 
so whether that's the issue, whether it's a culture issue, uh, whether it's just that there's too many people that are coming in that are uh, perhaps high, too highly qualified and they immediately go on to something bigger. Again, it's a lot of unknowns for the question, unfortunately, which make it difficult to answer. I agree with my esteemed colleagues. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so another one on the Whova app that came through was, what makes a SimTech a good SimTech? I think we've touched on parts of it, but just on the top of it. A positive attitude. I, I think having, just having the right approach to things. It, it's very difficult to think, is anyone in here not passionate about simulation? And and. I can't imagine somebody saying, oh yeah, I'm in it just for the money. You know. <laughs> You're here for a reason. And so that's honestly a huge thing for making the right fit. Well, I worked with a person who didn't come to SimGhost and didn't go to the SimOps things and didn't go to IMSH. And I would have loved to have had what I would think of the best possible SimOps person is the person who brings me the next big thing mm -hmm. and says, you really want to look at this. We really want to investigate this because this is going to be big. And I think we can do it here. So that's what I, I look for, somebody who's ahead of me and can help me look good at my job and I can help them look good at their job. So I think we, it's kind of a symbiotic relationship. We can kind of feed off of each other. Yeah, I, I agree with that. If I, if I have somebody that brings me solutions as opposed to bringing me problems, that's the, that's the person I want to continue to, to invest in and to develop. Mm -hmm. Andrew, anything to add to that? What's that? Did you have anything else to add to that? I would ask, actually hope that they bring the problems as well, because that's going to help build that symbiotic relationship as yeah, well. I, I want them to, to bring the problem, but also have a potential solution. Yeah. Not, and, not and, that they yeah, ignore yeah. the problems. But. So that, that goes back to, you know, they're willing to take the full thing on head on, have that right attitude. So I think we're all sort of echoing the same sorts of things here. Yes, I agree. So our Whova audience is tying us back to formal education, and there's a few questions in here. I'm going to paraphrase this one because it's quite long, um, but basically if we look at the history of nursing education, it went mm -hmm. from certificate to two-year to basically a four-year standard at this point. Uh, and this question is simply saying, uh, is this going to be the route that we take in some operations? And more importantly, are we going to grandfather in the experienced people, or are we going to force them into some level of degree at some point? And if so, how long do you think that's going to take to get there? a lot of questions at one time. So I would say that there's a lot of leeway in a lot of programs giving, uh, giving credit for life experience. I think this whoever wrote that question is really astute. I think that formal education will be a way. It's not going to become the way for quite a while, I don't think. And what I think has made um, operations move as quickly as it has is the diversity and the non-academic um, uh, background of a lot of the people that got involved early on because they weren't warped and they weren't beaten into submission. And the reason that I say this is I have a friend who works in VR and was very successful getting a whole VR program set up um, at a place I used to work uh, for teaching students. And he said, I can tell you, um, after two years, they come in brilliant and as they go through our classes, they become dumber and dumber because we're filling their minds full of stuff that we all know that they didn't know when they got here. And the creativity is kind of leaking out all over the place. And we're turning them into something that's like us. And we may not have be, ever have been that creative. So we're beating them into the mold of what we do. So 
I hope that both ways stay, that there's always this alternative way to do it and that formal education is there too. Because a blend of the two is a good thing, I think. The, the life experience is what makes everybody unique. So, you know, maybe there is some type of a, a, a minimum barrier that kind of helps you get past the door showing that you have the ability to, to think critically and to move um, and complete tasks and, and be able to accomplish things. But I want the person that's, that's adaptable and um, is able to, to kind of come in. There's an increase in the number of simulation programs. That should be you know, no, no mystery, that there's a, a huge increase in need. Um, every major medical nursing training program is developing these, and more and more they are uh, increasing their desire to meet the higher standards that are being um, suggested or potentially even required. There's you know, more and more uh, sort of push towards uh, accreditation and certification expectations to meet government requirements. And as those continue to advance, the, the expectation of those within those uh, programs is going to start to be pulled up with it. Mm -hmm. We've been, we've been given the four-minute warning, so what I'm going to leave off with is anyone coming into SIM, brand new, what is the one piece of advice you could give them? I think believe that it works and get creative. One piece of advice? <laughs> I would say I would say you want to uh, choose your friends wisely. Hmm. Look for some of the names of people who have published uh, in the SimOps world. Make a friend. Come to conferences and read and pay attention and soak up everything you possibly can. Susie, we'd give you two or three. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, I would... Yeah, get, get involved with something outside of your own institution. Don't stay in the, the silo where you are. Reach out to the larger group of professionals. Find out what you can do to help there and push forward to try and become involved with something bigger than where you are. All right, guys. Well, I, I think that it's no secret to anybody in this room that we absolutely adore all three of you guys. We consider you experts in our field, uh, and we uh, it's been awesome to do this for the last hour or so. Uh, so thank you very much for your time uh, and being willing to participate in this with us, and we will let you guys move on with the rest of your conference. Thank you very much. Thank you thank all you for the opportunity. Thank you. All right, guys, we hope you enjoyed this uh, very special panel session. We want to thank everybody who was involved again. So all three of our panelists, as well as SimGhost, their board, and the rest of the SimGhost community. Uh, the, you know, just being asked to do this was an honor, and it was an absolute blast to do it. Uh, so thank you all. Thank you, everyone. And then, of course, thank you guys as our listeners for supporting us for the last couple of years. We wouldn't be doing stuff like this and be involved in, in as much as we are if it wasn't for you guys. Yep. We appreciate every one of you guys. And as always, please go ahead and uh, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast out and uh, like and do the reviews if you feel like it. Uh, look for us on all the social media platforms uh, such as Twitter and LinkedIn and uh, Facebook. 
and Instagram and uh, follow us there. All right, guys. Well, again, thank you very much from all of us here at the Sim Geeks podcast. Uh, we look forward to releasing a handful more episodes that we did record both at SimGhost as well as the earlier conferences this summer. Uh, and so keep an eye out for that over the next couple of weeks. We're going to try and drop one about every week or two. So you'll see a, a lot of content coming out from us for the next month or so. Thanks again, guys. Have a great night. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening.